Today's episode features Megan Trock, who is a flutist and piccoloist extraordinaire who is currently on the national tour of Fiddler on the Roof. We start off by going through their musical origin story, leading up to discovering their love of musical theater and deciding to pursue it. We break down the concept of doubling as pit musicians and bring to light the crazy demands and expectations of being a redoubler on Broadway. We then get into differences between pit playing and orchestral playing, primarily in terms of anxiety levels and the cutthroat audition process. This leads to sharing our super chaotic stories of how we booked our tours and being on this crazy journey together. We also reminisce about our Legally Blonde experience and how formative and special it was. We end by discussing the importance of leveraging our own positions to uplift women plus and people of color, and how this needs to be done by people who are in managerial positions as well as those of us who are currently at the bottom of the totem pole. Do you want to start out by introducing yourself and saying hello? Hello, my name is Megan Trock. I use they, them pronouns. I am currently the read one player for the national tour of Fiddler on the Roof. And I just graduated from New England Conservatory with a master's degree in flute performance. And then I got my undergrad at Barnard College of Columbia University, majoring in music and minoring in environmental science. And I met Yael at Columbia and we did a bunch of music stuff together, Columbia Orchestra. And then also she was in my pit when I MD'd for Legally Blonde. So thank you for having me. Oh my God, so, so excited to have you. It's really exciting to have a friend who is now living the same weird existence as me. Mm-hmm. So I can't wait to get into it. A fellow touring musician now. But I wanted to start by kind of going back to the beginning. If you're down to tell us about your musical origin story and how you got into the flute and piccolo and how you got into musical specifically, walk us through. Yeah, sure. So I started with flute in fourth grade which I think is when a lot of people start just kind of we had our little assembly where they showed us all of the different instruments. And then my thought process for choosing flute was, oh, it fits in my backpack. That's the (laughs) most convenient. I will pick this. Uh, This was after a failed experiment of trying to learn violin and trying to learn guitar before that. So I was like, maybe flute will work out this time. Um, And I picked it up. I was like pretty good at it throughout middle school and by late middle school I was like definitely an above average player and I was really lucky that my band director in middle school was a flute player so she kind of recognized like oh if you want to do this like you should actually start putting in work and I think you actually have potential um and then I started playing piccolo when I was in eighth grade um just because like they needed a piccoloist for a piece in the band they gave me a school piccolo it was fine I honestly didn't have any thoughts about it um I got my own student piccolo at the time, and then, like, in California, where I grew up, there's Allstate that you can send in a recorded audition for, uh, and they have one for middle schoolers, so I was, at that point, pretty invested in flute. I was like, yeah, I'm gonna try for Allstate on flute, and I went to my school's little, we had a little recording session for Allstate, um, and I had an hour, and I was really prepared to play flute, and I did it, and it took a lot of takes, and I finally got a take, and I had like 20 minutes left of my recording session, and one of the band directors was like, did you bring your piccolo? Because it's the same piece on piccolo, if you just want to record it again on a different instrument. And I was like, oh, I did bring my piccolo, but I haven't practiced this at all. 
And he was like, no, it's fine. Just like sight read it, just do something. You have 20 minutes, you might as well. And I was like, okay. So then I did it in one take on Piccolo and then I got into Allstate on Piccolo and I got rejected on flute. So I was like, okay, interesting. (laughs) Little fun tidbit of information. Maybe I'm good at Piccolo. And then that kind of became a trend after that, all throughout high school, I auditioned for Allstate on flute and Piccolo. And I think by the end I was getting in on both, but at least in the beginning I was only getting in on Piccolo. And then like, as it happens in life, when you're good at something, you tend to start to like it more. So then I started to like, really fall in love with it. And like, at this point, it's my favorite woodwind. Um, And then I went to Barnard, majored in music. I did their lesson exchange program with Manhattan School of Music. Uh, So I studied with their head flute professor there. And it was kind of unfortunate because she doesn't like piccolo and she doesn't play piccolo. So I didn't really get to really dig into that with a teacher in undergrad. I tried to just do it on my own time. Uh, And then I went to grad school at NEC and there that I chose that school for one, just because like it's, it's a great school and I was thrilled to get in. And then mostly because the teacher that I got in with is the piccoloist of Boston Symphony Orchestra, which is like one of the best orchestras in the country. And I was like, Oh my goodness, uh, I feel so lucky to like actually get to dig in to Piccolo for two years. Uh, and that's been just incredible. And I'm obsessed with her, Cindy Meyer's love of my life. Um, so <laughs> that's like my journey with my two main instruments. And then for my doubles, which are clarinet and saxophone, that's been a bit of a more nebulous journey in mm. that I'm mostly self-taught on clarinet. Because I think when I was at... Barnard, I was doing theater, and I had decided that I wanted to do theater. I started theater in high school, liked it, never really did it seriously, just did it whenever a school play was happening. And then at Barnard, I started doing it whenever I could. And I could tell that the books that we were playing from, whenever it was like when I was playing flute, there was also like usually flute, piccolo, clarinet, alto saxophone. That was like the generic read book. Uh, So at the time at Barnard, since we don't really have a music school, we just kind of took what we could get when it came to theater. So I could just play the flute parts of a read book. So it was fine. (laughs) But I was like, oh, maybe I should seriously start to learn these other instruments so I can play the full books. So then I got kind of a student, like a good student level clarinet. And I tried to teach myself and it was pretty hard. And I'm still finding it a bit of a frustrating little boy. Um, (laughs) But I like... I got to play it a little bit in Camelot at Columbia. Thank you, Seth, for putting up with my very (laughs) mediocre clarinet playing. Um, And then I also self-taught myself alto sax for a bit in undergrad. And that was a lot easier just because the fingerings are much more similar to flute. And also it's just a more free-blowing instrument. I think like you just kind of blow into it and it makes sound for clarinet i still don't really fully understand the embouchure it's a lot more like pointed and a lot more of direct air um so i'm still learning on that and then i got to nec um my first year was all online because we were still in quarantine so i got to take a full semester of lessons with um, a master's a phd student at NEC who was studying saxophone. So that was really great. So that was like the one time that every week I took a lesson on saxophone and I felt like I seriously improved through that. Uh, And then I took a couple lessons with a jazz saxophonist at NEC when I got there in person. And that was also helpful 
And then for clarinet, I haven't ever taken consistent lessons. I had two introductory lessons at a summer festival in 2021 with some guy that was there. And then I had um, two quick lessons right before joining Fiddler with the second clarinetist of BSO because he owed my wow. piccolo teacher a favor. <laughs> so he just wow. like, helped me try to make sound on clarinet. Um, but in getting the Fiddler gig, I did have to submit an audition tape on clarinet. I just picked something that was easy enough that I could sound good on it. Um, but it didn't really translate to like actual serious clarinet playing in the workplace. So I felt like I needed some help. Um, so that's generally been my journey. And then every day, pretty much eight shows a week for the last month, I've been playing flute, piccolo, clarinet, and alto flute in Fiddler. Oh, wow. At least that's like a very flute forward book. It is a very flute forward book, which is why I auditioned for it. Because like you think of Fiddler and you think of woodwind parts and you're like clarinet. Yeah, right. that's the part like lots of yeah. Klezmer solos. It's wonderful. And I was like, no way am I going to be able to do that. So I'm not even uh -huh. going to audition. Um, and then I was texting the trombone player in this show about the audition because he went to NEC, so I knew him previously. And he was like, oh, don't worry. It's just background clarinet. Like, you'll be totally fine. Don't even worry about it. So I was like, okay. So then I sent in an audition and then I got it. And then I got the book and I was like, okay, you're right that this is a second clarinet part because it's the, the normal clarinet part is played by Andrew, the clarinetist. And this is just harmony but it's hard. <laughs> yeah, It's in all of like the big dance pieces that are fast and kind of exposed. Like I, this isn't something that I can just wing. I actually have to know what I'm doing. So then I kind of freaked out for a while. And then for the first like one to two weeks of me playing this show, every time I played clarinet, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. Um, but I didn't. And I've gotten go. better. Um, and people have been very patient with me and I've realized like, it's okay to make mistakes, which is kind of astonishing as a classical musician where like yeah. if you make a mistake in, in a classical symphony, um, people are not going to let you forget that. But then yep. stuff like theater, you're doing it every day and it's fine because you're not the main attraction. You're just helping the singers along. And if you make a mistake, nobody cares and it's like that's kind of freeing actually it's so freeing I think especially for us like anxious types in the classical music world yeah and as people as two people who play instruments that really stick out Absolutely. like first trumpet in an orchestra you can hear every little crack and squawk and every mistake is audible mm -hmm. to everyone in the room and piccolo too flute yep. too it's like yep. you come out and you like miss a note it's really bad. It cuts through the entire orchestra. I think both instruments do. Yep. And so being in this new environment where I just played show 202 last night. Wow. So home stretch, but you're never going to play a perfect show. And I realized that's a hundred percent fine. And I think I completely agree. Like when I had a concert cycle that would take three months and it would lead up to the one performance at Carnegie hall, every little mistake would haunt me. Yes. Like I would days later, just like thinking about that one note I cracked and I would just start like sobbing. Oh. <laughs> and like, but like now you make a mistake and you're like, okay, like it didn't ruin the show. And no. I have a chance in 24 hours to get it right. So mm -hmm. it's fine. And like over the course of 200 shows, you will make every mistake 
in that book. Like, mm-hmm. you will make mistakes you didn't know were possible to even make. <laughs> so it's kind of freeing. It's so much more relaxed, I think, than the classical space. And you're right, also, when you're literally not visible in the pit. Sometimes I really like to be visible and have attention, but I've also realized the pros of being invisible. So when you mess up, you can just kind of like not be visible on stage to absorb that. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to circle back just for a second. I usually save this for the end, but I thought, why not um, touch on this now? But like every episode and every interview, I try to kind of encourage my guests to break down like a musical concept to um, laymen and musicians alike. And I just wanted to bring attention a little bit to the idea of doubling, which is a pretty unique thing to woodwinds. Mm -hmm. Um, It basically means playing more than one instrument and having more than one primary instrument. For in the trumpet world, we have a little bit of that, like me playing flugelhorn counts as a double, Mm -hmm. but it's pretty much just like playing the trumpet. It's just kind of like prettier and more mellow and a little like deeper of like a mouthpiece cup, but it kind of plays itself when you're a trumpet player mm-hmm. but just wanted really quickly to touch upon like you got into it a little bit but clarinet is nothing like the flute alto sax is its own thing like the fact that you and like woodwind players in a pit have to play four to five instruments at a professional level is very very intimidating especially when you're like at a professional level on your like primary instrument like cannot emphasize this enough you are such a good piccolo and flute player and I'm sure just like having such high standards being like a mediocre by professional pit standards clarinet player is like so anxiety inducing but like I don't think people understand like how different these instruments are how different the setups are and the expectation to just like absolutely nail your book and to be able to like switch to another instrument in seconds it's crazy yeah Absolutely. And even in the flute world, like I'm always surprised, even when I went to NEC and I was studying with this, one of the best piccoloists in the country, I was expecting everybody in her studio to also play piccolo proficiently. And it was like me and one or two other people that were like, even even liked playing piccolo and everybody else was scared of it um, or just hated it. They didn't like it. They didn't want to play it. They didn't want to touch it. Because like for me, flute and piccolo are quite similar because they have the same fingering structure for the most part. There are a couple alternates that are individual to each instrument. Piccolo is obviously an octave higher and it's generally made of a different material because flute's generally made of um, silver or gold, sometimes platinum if you're being fancy. And piccolos are generally made of different types of wood. So it's considered a double, which I understand because it is a slightly different embouchure and you think about air differently and it has kind of a different tuning structure. Uh, So that was the first quote unquote double that I learned, but it's still strongly within the flute family. And same with alto flute, which I also have to play for this. It's in a different key. It's a little bit lower than the regular C flute. It's also bigger. It's heavier. I use an alto flute with a curved head joint, so I don't have to extend my arms too much out to the right because that hurts my body. So having a curved head joint makes it feel more like a regular flute. Uh, You just have to use a lot more air and a much wider embouchure. I do not prefer playing alto flute. I am significantly more in the piccolo boat of things. Um, and then alto sax is a little bit similar to flute, just because most of the fingerings in the middle to low register are fairly similar. Uh, it's in a different key. It's in E flat, uh, while flute is in C. 
and it's also a different material. It's generally made of brass. Uh, and it also has a reed, which is different than flute and piccolo and alto flute, the flute family, uh, which is something that I really had to get used to. So you can either use a cane reed, which is like the normal type, or um, something that's really common for touring is a synthetic reed, um, mm. which is pretty much just like a fake little plastic reed that somehow makes sound without um, warping in relation to humidity or temperature. Uh, sometimes purists in the reed worlds do not like synthetic reeds, but for things like touring where you're changing locations every week or every other day, like it can be really helpful. So I also use a synthetic reed for clarinet, which to me is the most different out of like the flute sax clarinet woodwind doubling family, just because almost all of the fingerings are quite a bit different. In the middle register, it is quite similar, but then anything like middle C and down, it's it switches kind of. Like you're using fingerings that you can also use on flute, but they're different notes. So sometimes mm. my brain will um, kind of blue screen and I'll just like play flute fingerings on clarinet and they'll come out as notes. They'll just be the wrong notes, um, which is always kind of funny, uh, which doesn't really matter in the middle of like a giant dance number, but it's like, oh, okay, I'm in a different key than everybody else. I should stop. Um, wow. Yeah. One of the crazy things about touring that I don't think people really think about is like, we move to a new city pretty much every week. You mm -hmm. sometimes multiple times a week and it's not always in the same geographical area. Like sometimes you are skipping from one side of the country to another mm -hmm. and it is stressful as musicians to like put our instruments through that, especially I think woodwind players and string mm -hmm. players. Cause at least my trumpet is like made of brass and it can affect tuning a little bit and whatever, it might not be the comfiest, but you guys like have a legitimate fear that your instrument might crack, like God forbid. Yeah. And that's really stressful. Like we had, um, after our second leg, we ended in Atlanta and then we had a week off. And then right before our last show in Atlanta, they were like, hey, like, by the way, we're driving um, the truck with all your instruments to Des Moines early and it's going to sit there for a week outside in like oh. zero degrees. Uh. And our bassist and reed players were like so scared. Yeah. Um, but it's like just things you don't really think about. But yes. the weather change affects everything that's also something i didn't really fully conceptualize just in relation to my piccolo because that's my only pure wooden instrument that i have with me here because my clarinet is like a composite of wood and plastic and also it's not very expensive and also i don't really like it so if it breaks oh no i have to get a new one like <laughs> but my piccolo i feel very attached to it's it's my favorite little boy um, and I've had it for years and it just feels like my instrument the most out of anything that I've played. Um, and also it, it's not super prevalent in the Fiddler book. And I think if I come back to this show next year, I'll probably get a cheaper piccolo just to bring it because like, I am quite nervous that this piccolo mm -hmm. that I've had for years that really feels like my instrument is gonna crack and i like i don't even know what i would do if that happened yeah it's really scary segwaying a little bit back to what you were saying at the beginning i was also just wondering a little bit of like more specifically how you got into theater because at least when i met you and we started like playing together like you were very into theater like you would 
I was a leader for Urban New York, which was basically like Columbia's lottery for getting to see Broadway shows and other fun things. And you were there at every single show I led pretty much, Fact. which was super fun. But <laughs> you were like, yeah, like I've seen everything. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like, where did that come from? Good question, because I was not raised in a theater household at all. Um, my parents, they don't have any dislike towards it, but I think I saw maybe the national tour of Wicked when I was a child, but it didn't make an impression on me. Um, and then when I was a freshman in high school, I think, they put on Guys and Dolls, of course. Everybody's high school puts on Guys and Dolls. Um, and I got to play in the pit for it, and I got to play flute and piccolo, and that was my first pit experience. And honestly, the rehearsal process was so annoying, and we were so bad, and I hated the show, but, like, I still had a really fun time. Yeah. And something about that just, like, kind of made my brain ignite. And just, like, when we started actually performing the shows and, like, hearing the audience's reaction, I was like, oh? this is actually quite fun, interesting. Um, And just like the whole pit experience, like I really liked our conductor. She was the orchestra director and she was just kind of a hoot and was also kind of miserable about the show. So then we all had this camaraderie and I made some good friends doing it. Um, And then like two years after that, unfortunately the next musical my high school did, which was every two years was Grease, which didn't have any woodwind parts. So I couldn't be in it. So I was really mad about it. Uh, And then, like, a community theater did Wizard of Oz, and then I got to do that, and I really liked it, too. Like, again, didn't really have any feelings about the show, but just, like, the experience of doing it was really delightful. So then when I got to Columbia, I was like, ah, nice, they have theater. How do I even get into this? Because they don't usually do auditions, which was kind of frustrating as as a first year who didn't know anybody and didn't know how to make connections and wasn't particularly social and was just kind of shy. And then I ended up accidentally overhearing the music director for Spelling Bee at the time was in my music history class and she was like, oh, we still need a flute player or something. Like I just heard her say that from two feet away and I kind of whipped my head around and I was like, what? you need a flute player? I play the flute. Um, So (laughs) then she listened to me play that evening in her dorm and she was like, nice, great, let's do it. So then I got to play Spelling Bee and like, that's one of my favorite shows. I didn't know it at the time, but now it is. And I just thought it was such a fun experience. So then I kind of got looped into the Columbia musical theater scene through that. And then uh, I got to do Adam's Family, with our mutual friend Amy, music directing, and Camelot with Seth, music directing. And then I ended up having to conduct Spring Awakening on 24 hours notice, which was a time. I just- Crazy. Yeah, I got a text on a Wednesday morning from Amy and she said, Megan, any chance you'd be uh you'd be free and willing to conduct spring awakening and i said amy do you mean the spring awakening that is tomorrow and she was like yeah because the music director has an emergency and has to drop out and i was like amy i've never been in spring awakening i don't particularly like the show i don't know it very well i haven't listened to it very much 
I've never conducted before. I don't even have a baton. I don't think I'm the best fit for this. And she was like, well, we've asked pretty much everyone else ever and nobody can do it. And I was like, okay, I guess I will try. So then I like ran to MSM, bought a baton, found the score vaguely illegally online, kind of just like bought the soundtrack, listened to it for 24 hours. We had one rehearsal where we didn't even run the show. And then um, I conducted the four shows that they did Thursday through Saturday. And it was just an adventure and I ended up kind of like loving it. I still don't really like the show, sorry. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> just the experience of conducting, I was like, oh shit, this is fun. Hello. This is like a whole different use of brain power. And then the you know, young woman who played Venla and that decided that she wanted to direct a musical next semester. So she approached me because I had kind of like stepped in to help the show and asked if I wanted to be the MD on her team. And I was like, yeah. And at the time she was like, I want to do Fiddler. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh my God, that'd be great. Um, so then we kind of applied as a team for Fiddler on the Roof. At the time, they were doing an off-Broadway production of Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, also known as Yiddler, and they were planning on closing over the summer so we could do it in the fall, but then they didn't. They extended their run, so then it would be illegal to do the same show in the same city for some reason because of union laws. So we had to switch shows. So then after a whole bunch of drama of trying to get six people to agree on a new show after we had put our hearts and souls into one show, we finally decided I'm Legally Blonde. And that was just like one of the best experiences of undergrad. I just thought it was so fulfilling and delightful. I loved the show before doing it, still love it now. I think it's one of the best like movie to musical adaptations out so there. So fun. Uh, totally slaps. Excellent band parts. A great lead trumpet part, which yeah, else smashed. It was so much fun. I think everyone <laughs> who was a part of that pit was like, that was the most fun we had in undergrad. Ah! Like, also, you were so good and like such a competent and clear conductor. And also, we're like, maybe most importantly, you were so patient in dealing with our shenanigans. <laughs> there were so many shenanigans. <sighs> but it was just such an amazing experience. And I agree. I think it's one of the better movie to musical adaptations as well. I have talked on this podcast a little bit that I'm kind of over revivals. And I think we yeah. need new content and like, yeah. stop bringing all these old movies back and making them into musicals that aren't as good as the movies. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Tootsie included. Yeah, I was gonna like, say. <laughs> Tootsie, now Mrs. Doubtfire, which is like Tootsie 2.0, like all of it. I'm like, why? We don't need it. Um, like a lot of the Disney ones too. Like yeah. if they're not doing anything new with it, I'm like, what's the point? Mm -hmm. Like we need new content. Um, that's like better representing the people and stories of today and like fresh takes, like all of it. Yeah. But Legally Blonde just somehow really slapped and it was pretty much just as good as the movie, which also slapped. Yep. <laughs> um, and I think like two things that I think I was hearing and what you were saying about kind of getting into musical theater. Like, I think I had a pretty similar trajectory where I played two musicals in high school and I was like, wait a minute, like, this is kind of fun. I know, right? I played Anything Goes um, as my first show. And then I played The Music Man as my second show wow. my senior year. Both were really fun. Really great trumpet parts, a little yeah. jazzy and kind of like stretched me in a new and interesting way. But I think like the two things that just kept on making me want to come back was like, I love the camaraderie 
And I think Legally Blonde was just like the apex of that where mm-hmm. like we all just became really good friends. Yeah. And like some of my best friends from Columbia were just in that pit and we like became friends in that pit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just like so special. Like I'd never experienced that before to that extent. Mm-hmm. And then I think part two is like, it's kind of getting us classical music nerds who did a very niche non-mainstream thing. And we pivot a little bit towards the mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually significant. Like, I feel like I used to be a big classical music elitist where I was like, this is the best music ever written. And like all you other 15 year olds, like don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you guys are so uncultured. You have no idea what you're missing out on. And I was like, pop music is trash, all this stuff. And I think more recently, I've become a lot more like open and flexible. And I think that's been really good for me. And I think being in like participating more so in mainstream culture has been really great in a lot of ways. Like, do I miss playing Mahler? Absolutely. Like, do Mm -hmm. I still think that some like classical music is some of the most like incredible music ever? Like, yes. But also playing in a mainstream crowd-pleasing comedy musical like I am right now is making me play and connect with people that would never find themselves at a symphony orchestra concert and that's pretty cool Mm -hmm. so I think those are the two big things that like that and then plus like the inner workings of just being a pit musician and yeah being less scared of mistakes and like it's overall just a lot less rigid and a lot more open and a little bit more in the real world where I think classical music can really feel like its own little world with a bunch of tortured artists and it's crazy yeah isn't there a stat that like orchestral musicians are some of the unhappiest people in their jobs in the country really I that doesn't surprise me yeah it's awful I mean it's also just like so cutthroat and people are just waiting for other people to mess up and get fired and die and it's just a bunch (laughs) of like it's a bunch of vultures honestly like there are so many people who want to be um I know it seems very niche to people who aren't orchestral musicians but there are a lot of orchestral musicians out there who want very few jobs that are actually out there yeah and people will literally wait for a spot to open up and like a hundred people will flock to that audition to try to get it yes um and it's awful like I literally I have very vivid memories of I went to see Mahler 5 which is like my favorite trumpet solo ever and I saw it at Carnegie Hall with the Cleveland Orchestra and the trumpet player is an absolute legend the Cleveland Orchestra is one of the best orchestras Mm -hmm. in the country slash world and he messed up the opening solo and like probably half of the audience were trumpet players who came (laughs) to hear him either prevail or mess up and like the audible gasp that came out of like hundreds of us was wild. It's awful. I can't imagine anything worse than playing Muller 5 in front of hundreds of trumpet players and then messing up. And like, he seemed so defeated. Like you could tell from hundreds of feet away. Oh. Um, but like, that's the culture. It's awful. I, so I think that's- professional auditions and like both of them were just uh, miserable. I really disliked both experiences. Even though I was proud of how I played most of the audition material, just like the vibes were rancid in both of those spaces. And like when you don't advance, it hurts so badly. And it feels like such a personal thing, even though it's not. And it just makes you feel like, why did I just spend the last 10 to 15 years of my life trying to do this thing and I'm awful and I'm terrible and everybody's gonna hate me forever and then it's just like then the next day you wake up and you're like oh never mind like it's fine I'm a normal person again right 
it's definitely just this tortured artist situation like I feel so manic as a musician sometimes yeah um <laughs> also like I think the audition process is so interesting because I think both are kind of fucked but in classical music you have these like blind auditions and you have like a bunch of people kind of show up and you have this like first round and there's like a curtain and that's supposed to protect the musician I don't know if you have thoughts about this I'm still I think pretty back and forth I think blind auditions became mandatory because a brass player actually like sued the union or orchestra or something because it was I think a female trombone player and she was like by far like the best player there but it wasn't a blind audition and they ended up giving it to the man and I think there was like some explanation that it was like oh like he's just like stronger or whatever and she was like that's bullshit Mm -hmm. and I think that was the thing that kind of like instigated blind auditions to be a thing and I think in a lot of ways it does protect people but also it all seems kind of like BS and it's still so political and like, I don't know, every audition experience I've had just seems like super politically charged. And like, I don't know if anything's actually protecting me. And in some ways being a female trumpet player, you get a lot, there's a lot of stigma. And in other ways, there's also like a sense of tokenism. Yeah. Cause maybe they want a female trumpet player to make them look good. Yeah. So that's always been like really conflicting in my brain and like hard to wrap my head around where I'm like oh am I actually worthy of these opportunities am I not getting opportunities because I'm a girl like Mm -hmm. all of these things um and then in the pit world which I want to get into how much of a shit show that is in its own way I think eight out of ten of the people in the pit got this job off of a text message yes like hey you want to do this like I think I was one of two people who actually auditioned And that's also really fucked up because I think it kind of, for the most part, gatekeeps this like very small community of just like like, the same people getting gigs because you just like are in and you know people and you just keep getting asked to do tours or whatever. So it's all kind of bad. But in some ways, it feels like they're at least more transparent and less so trying to like hide that they're, I don't know, upkeeping some kind of equitable values where I feel like in classical music, it feels like BS to me. Yeah, everybody in classical music is like, oh, but it's blind. So it's 100% fair. And it still isn't, I don't think. Yeah. I wanted to shift gears a little bit. Just because you're a part of this, I wanted to share the crazy story of me getting this Tootsie job and also like the audition process and how maddening it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But TLDR, I owe it all to Megan with Tootsie. And I thought this would be a good time to share it because, yeah, you're a part of the story. Basically, so you have a bit of a timeline. In August of 2020, I accepted a return offer to be an investment banker at a bank I interned at over the summer. And it was miserable. It was like 16 hour work days, but I accepted it anyways because it was like the only thing I really had going on at the time. And it seemed like a good option to like make a lot of money, be financially independent, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also knew it was kind of a death sentence and it was a classic like masochistic move. And I was really scared that COVID and this job would kind of end my music career. So I was trying to justify all of it to myself and say that I could like work at this job for a year, save a lot, and then fund my life as a starving artist and make a comeback. At the same time, very well knowing that that probably wouldn't happen um, because you can't just casually take a year off the trumpet and expect to like come back full force. (laughs) So then in November, I casually spontaneously applied to the orchestra now, which is like a under 30 training orchestra. Um, And I thought that was going to be my golden ticket out of finance. And then a couple months later in January, I found out I had COVID. And while I had COVID and was too weak to play, 
I found out I was a finalist for this and was like, oop. So then I had six weeks to basically ramp up um, to an insane audition with like 13 excerpts and a concerto and it was brutal. Mm-hmm. But I was able to somehow submit it. And then in March, I didn't get it and was super sad and emo about it because I knew that that meant that I was going to have to do this finance job, which I didn't want to do. And then in April, I called you, Megan, and was basically super sad and like, I've always looked up to you and was like, hey, I didn't get in and music is over and what do I do? And you were super reassuring that things would be fine. And you also casually brought up that this musical Tootsie is going on tour and that they were taking open auditions, which doesn't happen a lot. Mm-hmm. And that you submitted and I should too. But at this point, I hadn't really played in a couple months because I was so burnt out from that audition. I was like, I'm over it. So I couldn't record anything. So I just literally sent the music contractor my orchestra audition mm-hmm. was like here. And then in May, you heard back and they were like, they wanted references, right? Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, like, that's so great. And I was kind of, I'd never heard back from them and you had, and I was like, great, I'm just going to be your cheerleader from the sidelines. <laughs> And then beginning of June, you found out you didn't end up getting it. Yeah. Hashtag Curtis. We blame him. It's Um, the white (laughs) man again. (laughs) Always. always. That's how it goes. He's lovely. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, bummer. But also you had another year of NEC. So I was like, you'll be fine. Yeah. And at this point, I thought like the entire hiring process had like happened and was like cool and started like prepare myself for this job that was going to start in a month. Mm -hmm. And then in mid-June... I was reached out to and was asked if I'm still interested in the gig and if so to send some stuff in the lead trumpet book and send it back ASAP and I was so thrown off and what followed were basically like the two and a half most unstable anxious chaotic times of all time (laughs) um I yeah it was so bad I got this email on the way back from Ikea and (laughs) on in between that and going to like a housewarming and was like shaking and like went to this housewarming and drank like a whole bottle of like two dollar wine and like threw up everywhere oh my god (laughs) I don't know if you knew that part and then the next day was just like super hungover in bed and started to listen to the soundtrack and like learn the part and then I hopped on a train down to Midtown to the trumpet store and like bought a lead mouthpiece for the first time in like seven years and was like it's happening somehow was able to send in a recording and was like, hey, I really need to find out within like two to three days because I'm supposed to be moving and starting a job in two weeks. And the contractor was like, yeah, 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 you'll find out within two days. Um, And I did not find out within two days. Um, And I was just like sitting on my couch all day, every day, waiting for an email. Uh And then I would go out into the real world and turn my phone on airplane mode so I wouldn't find out during a random like dinner or rehearsal or night out. Um, and my family didn't know about it. And it was just like a disaster. And then two weeks went by and it was time to start my new job. But I was triple booked to start the job, record with Billy Ray Cyrus for the CNN 4th of July spectacular show thing. Um, and I had signed up to go to a brass quintet seminar in the Berkshires. And should I have triple booked myself? Probably not. But I was so scared that these would be my last musical opportunities literally ever that I'd find a way to do it. And I had some guy sub for me the first week in the Berkshires. And then I recorded with Billy on my first day of work and had my camera off and volume off. And I had my phone in the other room during like my first day. So starting strong. And then a few days later, two of my best friends like woke up at the crack of dawn with me and got a rental car and drove me to the Berkshires with the hope that I'd find out if I got to see on that drive. And then I didn't. And then the following day, 
on that Tuesday, I was all alone in the Berkshires with a bunch of randos and I found out that I got it. <sighs> and I was in shock and calling everyone. And I remember you were one of my first calls mm-hmm. um, because I was and am so grateful for you and to you for telling me about this opportunity mm-hmm. and being so supportive through all of it. But yeah, the next day I quit my finance job three days in, which was a bit traumatic, but here we are. Here we are. And it was just the most insane turn of events ever. And for you being in touch with Tootsie and then getting Fiddler was also like so spur of the moment and like kind of a will they give it to me or not. Yeah, it was crazy. So after I didn't get Tootsie, it was a bummer. But also I was like, great, I can finish grad school on time. Like that'll be nice to just have that. And also one of my good friends Amy, who I went to undergrad with, was also at NEC at the same time as me. So I was like, yay, I get to hang out with Amy. <laughs> Which, fun yeah. fact, was great for the last year. I love her. Yeah, anyway. we love it. Yeah. <laughs> and then I had just kind of, I'd set my sights. I'm going to reapply to this company that does Tootsie and other tours, Troika. I'm going to reapply next spring, summer, around May. Um, so starting in April, I had just kind of been checking their website every day to see if they had updated and if they were accepting auditions um and then they really weren't updating anything so i was like okay (laughs) i don't really know what's happening and i'm a little bit stressed and maybe nothing is gonna work out and i'm not gonna have a job ever and everything's gonna suck forever and then out of the blue on like a wednesday at 1 p.m i had just gotten lunch i got a text from this guy who I only knew because a year before, in my first year at NEC, in quarantine, in my house in California, one of my classes was um, about entrepreneurial musicianship, and one of our assignments was to do informational interviews with three people who are doing jobs that we're interested in doing. And so I reached out to my professor and I was like, do you have any leads on people who uh, have done touring, who maybe have a connection with NEC? And she said, no, but you should ask our orchestra director because she likes theater. So maybe she'll know somebody. So I did. And I had had like a pretty good relationship with this orchestra director. Uh, We like each other. We're friends. And she was like, oh, yes, here's uh, let me introduce you to uh, an NEC alum who majored in trombone and conducting when he was here. And now he's on the national tour of Fiddler on the Roof. And I was like, oh, that would be awesome. So then I called him. And for the other informational interviews that I did, it was pretty much like, tell me about your life. How did you start touring, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked him that as my opening question. And his name is Isaac. He was like, okay, well, I could tell you about that. But I'm not sure if that would be helpful to you. Like, how can I help you? What do you want to know? And I was like, oh, interesting. That's such a selfless approach to this phone call. And we talked for over an hour and he just gave me the lowdown on like everything I could ever want to know about touring. Uh, And it was just like a really pleasant conversation. And that's actually how I knew about the Tootsie audition. And that's how I told Yael about the Tootsie audition. So it's just like a stream of information from people. And that was kind of the end of that. And I had, he also auditioned for Tootsie and also did not get it. So we were kind of texting about that every once in a while. Uh, So we were still vaguely in contact, didn't really talk throughout the next couple of months. So then on this Wednesday at 1 p.m. in early April of 2022, 
uh, I get a text from him. And it's a link to the company's website who runs Further on the Roof, which is called Networks. And it's, uh, he says, our Read One player is leaving. You should audition for this. And I was like, whoa, okay, interesting. So I looked at the, uh, the audition material and it was like, this is a flute, piccolo, alto flute, clarinet job. And I was like, okay, I can play these. And like the audition yeah. had been posted that day. And I was like, oh my God, I feel like I need to send in tapes right now. That's when I asked, I was like, ah, I feel like clarinet is my weakest woodwind. Like, should I even audition for this? And he was like, yeah, don't even worry about it. It's just background stuff. So then I sent in audition tapes to the contractor and the, the listing was like, in all caps, immediate replacement needed for the read one player of Fiddler on the Roof. And I was like, okay, it says immediate. I applied the day it was posted. Surely they're gonna tell me in like two days. So I was like, every morning I would wake up and stressfully check my phone to see if I had gotten anything. And then two days passed, nothing. Like a week passed, nothing. And then it was like two weeks and I had just given up. I was like, okay, fine, whatever. Like they're just not gonna get back to me it's I, I wasn't really banking on this I was excited to like graduate at NEC and then I was editing another theater audition video at like 5 30 p.m on a random day and then I get an email that's like re my audition tape and it starts off with like hi Megan thank you for sending in audition for Fiddler on the Roof. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm not gonna get it. And then like the next sentence, which was vaguely cut off by like the iPhone message thing was like, I have an open position. And I was like, wait, huh? Wait, what? So then I opened it and it was like, I have an open position for the read one chair Fiddler on the Roof. Take a look at the schedule and the memo and tell me if you would like to see the contract. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> And I was getting hourly text message updates. <laughs> yeah, you were like the first person I texted. I like sent you a screenshot of the email and I was like, I think I just got Fiddler on the Roof. Insane. But it was such a vaguely worded email. It wasn't like, congratulations, we are offering right. you the chair. It was like, I have an open position. And I was like, is it for me? <laughs> <laughs> ah! So I was kind of stressed the whole night. Like I was just pacing around. And also I was extraordinarily stressed because it started in mid April and my school doesn't end. Uh, like classes don't end until May 6th. So I was like, I'm gonna have to miss classes. And then I looked it up and I was gonna have to miss an orchestra concert and a wind ensemble concert. So I like immediately texted my flute professor. I was like, I need to call you like as soon as possible. And I talked to her, she was so supportive, love her. She was like, uh, this is great. Yeah, you should do it. Don't even worry about the class that you're in with me. Like we can do it online, no worries. We can do lessons online if we have to. And then I had a little bit of trouble with a couple, with mostly just one NEC admin person, um, but he gave in over time. And then he was like, okay, fine, you can do this and you can graduate still. And I was like, well, thank you very much. Uh, so then that took like two or three days of just like immense stress because the, the contractor was like, please get back to me within three days, whether you want to do this or not. So I had time limits. So if, if it hadn't conflicted with school, I would have been like, yes, absolutely. Let me sign the contract. Let me sign my life away to you. But the, the conflict with NEC was very stressful, but I actually just had my last assignment of NEC yesterday and graduation is on Sunday. So I think we're all set. Amazing.
and you enjoy touring so far for the most part yeah I do I kind of had heard like middling reviews like I know you've had like good times and bad times <laughs> um <laughs> And then I got here and also like the music director for Fiddler called me like two weeks before I joined and he was like, yeah, this is a tour that's in its fourth year and uh, people are a little tired. So I think we're really looking forward to your new energy. And that didn't instill me with a lot of confidence. I was like, oh my God, everybody's going to be miserable. This is going to suck. And then I got here and like people were really nice and continue to be really nice and um mostly people seem happy like there are definitely days like two show days people seem a little bit full of despair um (laughs) but like you know the normal work week like people are kind we show up we joke together like the pit is really sweet and we like do band brunch every couple of weeks and um i've this is so nerdy um the md and a couple of the pit people and me play magic the gathering every couple of days uh i've never played this before i am trying very very hard to fit in with the straight men in the pit and it is (laughs) maybe not working but i'm really doing my best (laughs) all that assimilation (laughs) yeah they're just, they're very nice. They're like the very kind, like liberal straight men who will like politely but confusedly smile at me when I say gay things. Sure. Well, I'm glad it's been a pretty smooth transition overall and that you're liking it. I assumed that you wanted to be like a touring musician, but I also recently learned that that's not necessarily the case. So the plan is to do this for like maybe a couple of years and then move back to New York. Yeah, just personally, this is kind of more of a means to an end because I feel like New York is where I want to be and Broadway would be the end goal. And I wanted to do touring just because I think it looks really good on my resume and also because I need experience on clarinet and saxophone, especially. Like, I think I could pretty much jump into most Broadway shows on flute if you gave me a couple days. Um, but I could not do that on clarinet or sax. So I'm hoping that like this actual professional experience of doing this every day on instruments that are my third and fourth instrument, uh, that'll be like really, really excellent for my musical career. Totally. I think there's so much growing and learning that can happen on the job, which is something I realized because I didn't go to music school. I also didn't, I was considering going to get my master's in music to kind of make up for not going to conservatory for undergrad, but I think I've grown and learned so much this year. I feel like I've aged 20 years in some ways. I've never felt more young and more old at the same time in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just a lot of life experience to live when you're on the road and constantly in new places and dealing with people and getting through shows no matter what at all costs. So I'm excited that you're on this journey now with me as well. And I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you, since I know we're a little short on time now, but I just wanted to kind of bring up like in terms of arts equity, where do you think the future of classical music, but also musical theater is kind of like going and how do we get more diverse pits and basically not have like four white men gatekeep all of Broadway, if you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a huge problem. And I will say that the company I work for, the contractor, is widely known to almost only hire white men for pits. Um, Like, women are a rarity, and people of color are probably even more rare. Um, So it's difficult, because what can we really do besides wait for people like that to leave, and then Mm. hopefully 
uh, get more accepting and diverse people in management positions. Um, I know on Broadway, there are only about five music contractors, and historically, they've all been men. I think we finally have Christy Norder, who is a woman, and I think she's the first female music contractor for Broadway. And I think that's yeah, a step in the right direction, for sure. And just like seeing her being able to do that in a very, very functional role um, is hopefully going to inspire more women to be like, yes, I can do this. And also inspire the men in charge to be like, oh, look, this person can do it. Maybe we should hire more women. Mm-hmm. Um, it just sucks that like that has to fall on the the women or the people of color. like they have to take the brunt of people's hatred and um, disbelief just to kind of pave the way for other people. Um, I think society is improving slowly, hopefully, over time. And, um, you know, just over time, I hope that things continue on this trajectory, hopefully in a slightly faster way than it has been going for the past uh, 50, 100 plus years. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about it? Yeah, I think what comes to mind like first I guess in this exact moment is like also the importance of leveraging our own position now as two people who just got our foot in the door mm-hmm. like seeing that as winning the lottery in this kind of industry mm-hmm. with our backgrounds and even though we're not in management roles hopefully one day we are or are connected to people who are but I think even at the bottom of the totem pole like feeling this responsibility to bring people up with you mm-hmm. like when I got Tootsie I was like if God is my witness Megan will be getting a touring job (laughs) like who knows how I probably didn't have anything to do with you getting Fiddler but like you know it's like I don't know it's it's this responsibility to bring other people up um and to uplift others basically at all roles and yeah in all levels so I guess that's one and then I also just wanted to plug Maestra for being like a really cool network of women and women plus and non-binary folk who do musical theater stuff And just like the fact that they have all these cool workshops that I know you've gone to a couple and it's just a really cool network and like very expansive and growing directory of people and all over the country um, who you could just kind of reach out to. Um, Mm -hmm. There's like a job directory, all these things like they're doing such good work. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think it's just important to walk the walk I guess and just feel that responsibility and like I was like perusing on playbill for jobs and I also saw the immediate replacement for read one on fiddler and I like sent it to you immediately I was like oh my god Megan you have to apply right now and you're like don't worry I just got this like an hour ago like I'm applying right now (laughs) um and that kind of thing just like always keeping your friends in mind Mm -hmm. and really really looking to uplift people and get people in the door um yeah overall just so glad you were able to make time for me today and we were able to like talk about some tour madness a little bit because you've really been my person this last year when it's come to just like ah tour life this is crazy (laughs) and I'm so glad we're both kind of on this journey together now even though we're on different shows and then on different coasts right now but yeah yeah love you and adore you and hope to see you in a city near one of us (laughs) 